Hey folks, thank you so much to everyone who took the time to respond to our little listener survey. We loved reading everything you had to say and how you feel about our direction as a podcast. Thank you for all the poems, the fantastic recommendations, the suggestions, and the sweet words of encouragement. But most of all, we appreciated the chance to learn a bit more about you, listening to this nerdy show of ours from all over the planet, and right here on the Salish Sea. It fills our hearts to know that these stories and all the guest voices we've had the honor of bringing to you are inspiring so many people in so many different ways. Season 3 is almost here. Thank you for your patience. So we're going to officially close the survey. That said, we love hearing from you. You can always reach us through the contact form on our website, futureecologies.net. Today, we're excited to bring you another podcast that's been inspiring us over the summer. From the Serpentine Galleries and the corresponding Serpentine podcast, the series Back to Earth is a sonic collage of art and discussions with art makers, responding to the climate emergency and how we situate ourselves within this deeply entangled world. Among so many other things, this episode deals with orchids, wildness, decolonial queerness, the apocalypse, and the meaning of queer ecologies. Naturally, it struck a chord with us, and it is a lot sexier than anything we've ever made. So, fair warning. Enjoy. This episode includes explicit content, including references to sexual activity. Serpentine Podcast. Back to Earth. Hey, Victoria. I'm thinking of you in our upcoming episode. I'm at the Sor of Athens. Not at the beach, but at the rocks of the Sor. It's about a half-hour drive from the city center. Can you hear the waves? Welcome to the Serpentine Podcast, Back to Earth. I'm your host, Victoria Sin. I'm an artist, and this Back to Earth podcast series is all about exploring the ways that artists are engaging with the climate emergency. Today's episode is a little bit different. Today, I'm joined by Costa Stasinopoulos, who is part of the Back to Earth team at the Serpentine Galleries. Hi, Victoria. It's so nice to hear your voice. <laughs> I've been sending you little love messages and I've been enjoying so much this process. It is so nice to hear your voice. I am so excited to speak to you, to co-host with you in this episode. We are going to be talking about things that can be considered under the term of queer ecology. And I think that before we go into the episode, we should just take a moment and dissect what we mean or what we could mean or what we don't mean, I don't know, like, what is queer ecology? What do those things mean together, right? <laughs> I mean, queer ecology, like, put these two words together and it opens um, so many possibilities. But at the same time, I want to acknowledge that it's actually also quite mundane in a very interesting way, because 
we're not really here to insert an episode that is sprinkled with fairy dust. As much as I love glitter, this is not what we're here to do. <laughs> um, so by way of introduction, um, assistant curator of life programs at the Serpentine, working on uh, the general ecology project and queer ecology is an area that uh, feels very natural to me and I know that this is a problematic term but I'm I'm embracing all the problematics that go with it and this is the way that I lead my life and my work it's not an insert into a program to hit a diversity target and it should never be it should be the way that we are working and addressing all of the complexities of our existence just like imagining a queer world should not be that difficult of a step to take let's break it down like ecology is a system of many different components that they all interact with each other. The word uh, and term queer also is a term that is a huge umbrella for so many different people. So again, you have a space that does not hold absolutes in there. There are so many different colors and so many different nuances in there. So putting these two together, that is actually something quite rich. Definitely. And I think that so much of the reframing that needs to happen or the querying that needs to happening of the kind of field of ecology has to do with moving away from absolutes, moving away from our very human need to classify things and create these false dichotomies to separate ourselves from nature, to separate classifications from each other. And actually what really we need to focus on is the relationships between things. And something I've been thinking recently is, you know, how the relationships between things are just as if not more important than the things themselves, which is something that we are totally blinded to with our kind of human need for pattern recognition and drawing lines around things. So I was thinking, how can you disrupt or at least problematize visions of queerness I don't feel like we can alter one unified vision of a queer ecology and that it's amazing since within what we can call the queer community, our ecosystem is as diverse as the ecosystem of this planet. Victoria, what do you see? A thick haze which I struggle through to consciousness. Smells of moisture, thick vegetation, soil, wood, decay, textures of ground beneath me, things with six or eight legs crawling on my skin, eating, nesting, or trying to reach the other side. I open my eyes to early morning, shake off my guests. I struggle up from where I am lying down, brushed by a giant fern. There is a person in the middle distance. I can't make out their face in the glare of the sun as it illuminates their auburn hair. I have a feeling they are giving me a faint smile, as I instinctively do to them. I have been here before. The sun sets fire to the sky. It floods the landscape and catches jeweled flashes of color deep into the forest. I look towards my feet and see what looks like a trampled flower in the soil, still as anything. It looks as though it had a complex petal structure, opening and twisting 
and iridescent with tips that flash red like violence, like sex and danger. I think of orchids twisting around trees. I felt that in every single cell of my body. Good, you're meant to, sweetie. (laughs) (laughs) I love how you talk about strangling and twisting um, in the forest. Thank you. I mean, I really, I was so inspired by my research into orchids for this piece because they... um, have so many different, I mean, they've been around since dinosaurs, since before the continent separated and um, have evolved so many different ways of reproducing and having different relationships with different species that are erotic and deceptive. I mean, they, yeah, they're the perfect jumping off point um, to explore gender and sexuality and eroticism and power dynamics. And I think this brings me perfectly into a conversation that I had with one of my favorite thinkers, Amma Josephine Budge. Amma is a speculative writer, artist, curator, and pleasure activist. She's currently doing a PhD, which takes a queer decolonial approach to challenging climate colonialism in sub-Saharan Africa, with a particular focus on inherently environmentalist pleasure practices in Ghana, which is where her family is from. Before we got into her incredible work exploring race, art, ecology, and feminism, I just wanted to ask her her perspective on the sensuality and eroticism of flowers. (laughs) So when I first had an idea that this might be a question, I immediately thought, I kind of looked around my house and I have these beautiful long stems of pussy willows right in front of me. And I thought, oh, it's pussy willows, 100%. (laughs) Not just because they're called pussy willows, but there's just something so, I I mean, of course they're not, actually flowers well they flower but if you're not familiar with pussy willows they're kind of like branches and they have this wonderful little like furry buds all over them and they're so soft and they're very white and then they turn kind of into a beautiful acorny tone the longer you keep them you can keep them indefinitely they dry without losing their feel so they're they're kind of like bunny rabbit ears but they're these tiny buds and the contrast between the branch and the soft bud and how they're kind of everlasting and they also kind of look a little bit like um those beads that you (laughs) those anal beads that you can use but kind of like soft ones (laughs) you know and I just It's just something about how the contrast of the bark and the kind of the fur, this kind of way of of having so many multiple dimensions that are both hidden and revealed at the same time. Yes, I've been going on a lot of walks and I've been looking so much at flowers and plants and like flowers especially. I mean, there's such an incredible variety that like exists in the British summertime, but they really, I think like, are such a perfect way to express like the multiplicity of like gender and sexuality that exists. For me, I think that lilies have always been the most explicit flower. The stamen is always just like, like it looks wet. (laughs) It absolutely looks wet. And it's also, (laughs) it's got that kind of dusting powdering as if it's kind of like just excreted come in this fabulous expulsion. And then it's all kind of dried in this powdery like unashamed residue everywhere yes yes the residue gets everywhere it's like contagious is the wrong word to use but it's um but it's a little bit you know if we could be impregnated by plants lilies would be like these hyper impregnators 
The bloom is about as high as my chest, vertically symmetrical with a complex structure. On the top half, five long ruffled petals shoot up into the air and spiral back, like they are reaching for the sky or preparing to come down onto me. On the bottom half, one huge, entirely red labellum stretches out to me like a bottom lip, which glistens with a sticky substance. Either side of this are many thin whisker-like petals which trail on the ground, at least a meter long each. The whole thing makes me think of a large, veined, wet mouth, open and expecting. So Queer Ecologies is a collective between Harry Biles, myself and, and Lyndon K. McMahon, brought together through a shared attention and also attraction and, and pleasure and joy in thinking through the abundance of ecology and how queer it is in every way. So Queer Ecologies is a project that's about bringing attention to the queer aspects of nature, but it's also about pushing back against that idea of queerness and humans being seen as unnatural. So it's like saying, well, actually, you know, we are echoed everywhere else across this ecosystem. So perhaps living as a species who only do monogamy and only do heteronormativity is incredibly unnatural compared to every other species. Um, we find divergent forms of cohabitation, of copulation, of child rearing in every species. Really only ours that has said that it needs to be this one way. And so it's about kind of drawing attention to those things, but it's also about finding joy. And so it's this incredible kind of way to think about scale, to think about attentiveness, to think about being humble and learning from and really refine that joy and that pleasure, but also learn whether it's dance moves or whether it's ways of surviving and ways of navigating a rapidly changing environment. Uh, we can learn so much from these things that we see as being so small and insignificant, and yet without them, there would be no us, very literally. What if it was all just the same thing? What if we all just become one thing? What if we are all just the same thing? What if we were the same being? Hey, Victoria. I'm at the sea again. Like I've traveled away from the city at a time when most people are restricted during the pandemic and came here to this island and that felt transformative. But why? Why can't this kind of transformation be experienced more often? Why does it feel like a transformation? In a way, I think for many people it does. Transforming ourselves is something that everyone does, but for some reason it's more, I guess, observable and prominent for people that go against the norm and the expectations of a heteronormative conservative culture. So why don't we all embrace transformation as part of our very fabric of being? That would be so much more liberating and fun, don't you think? Hi, Costas. I really wish that I could be by the sea. I would love to jump into the healing energy that you speak about. I feel like there's so much that you know, myself and I think a lot of people right now are, are hoping to kind of wash away or shed. It's like a real moment of transformation. 
To be honest, I've been really thinking a lot about、um, transformation. I just cut my hair off last Wednesday. I cut off about 30 inches,、um, and、uh, my friends say I look like a mushroom. Somebody said I look like the mushroom at the end of the world the other day, which I really loved. It's a difficult one, isn't it? Because on the one hand, I think we are seeing these massive political. Global transformations, ongoing ecological transformations. But on the other hand, it's it's really just just a, a volume of attention that has changed, not necessarily the actual acts or, or political dynamics themselves.、Um, since the Black Lives Matter movement has kind of had its latest iteration of public exposure, so it's, it's this very difficult. Space of of being in a, a moment when everybody's kind of saying, "Oh, look, everything's changing," and those of us who've kind of lived through these moments before are saying, "Well, is it really changing? What does that mean? Like, is it who is it changing for, and and how is that actually going to result in, you know, in a better world for people who are living through the ends of the current global capitalist system, white supremacist global capitalist system?" Also, what's been particularly interesting for me has been actually the transformation that's been afforded by working from home during quarantine. Actually, this that kind of forced temporal shift from hyper productivity into a space of enforced stillness has been incredibly transformative for me in terms of rethinking my priorities and what I want my life to look like and what I want it to feel like and how I need to kind of shift my my goalposts a bit in terms of how much I want to work and I want to produce and that's been a kind of a, a really beautiful process of. Of transforming my my body through, I mean, I've been doing lots of yoga and just taking time. I've been buying house plants, and I now I now have like I don't know some insane number like fifty house plants. It, it takes me like forty five minutes to water everything every day, and then feed it, feed it all once a week. So there's also this kind of real different shift in timing and attentiveness, and choosing what one brings one's attention to. And I think that's something I want to hold on to. Imagine being a fig wasp who is born pregnant and born in a fig at the exact moment the flowers of that fig reach maturity and begin to shed pollen. Imagine if your only purpose was to collect that pollen and then crawl into a different fig to pollinate its flowers. Lay your eggs and then die, so that this cycle could be perpetuated. Imagine if your only purpose was to perpetuate a cycle. As Victoria said earlier, this is the Back to Earth podcast series, and as part of Back to Earth at、uh, the Serpentine Galleries, we have invited Jack Halberstam and Macarena Gomez Paris to co-curate with us a weekend of live programs that will address how we think about art 
activism, conceptual language, the wild, and how queer ecological decolonial practices intervene in the dominant and very often heteronormative discourse on the environment and climate justice. Macarena gomez Barres is Professor and Chairperson of Social Science and Cultural Studies at the Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, New York. She's also Director of the Global South Center, a research center that works at the intersection of social ecologies, art and politics, and decolonial methodologies. Jack Halberstam is Professor of English and Gender Studies at Columbia University and the author of many seminal books. And there is this great sentence from one of his writings that I want to share with you. He says, wildness is where the environment speaks back, where communication bows to intensity, where worlds collide, cultures class, and things fall apart. I think my work is interested in what falls outside of the category of the human, and I've given the term wildness to these many domains that are on the one hand controlled by human endeavor and conceptualized through human philosophy and yet exceed the human ability to script those arenas. And so animals and plant life and all kinds of entities that fall outside of human classification could be understood as the category of the wild. And my work pays a lot of attention to oppositional forces like order and disorder. And while we tend to think about apocalypse as a kind of disorderly and disordering force that sweeps through terrains or consciousness, in fact, it is order that is the problem with human-centrist thought. And disorder or wildness or anarchy or declassified knowledges represent the possibility of being in different kinds of ecologies and being in relationship to other ways of thinking. So I use this category of wildness, and I think, you know, that comes up in, in Marcus' work very clearly in relationship to indigeneity on the one hand, but also in relation to the negative impact of extractive capital on the other. The term queer and its translations and the various ways in which the term could be used for a set of non-normative arrangements or frameworks you know, certainly on the one hand has done enormous amount of work. I mean, I think Jack's long arc of work and many books along with queer color scholarship have shown key ways in which we can think about ways to frame forms of living, loving, being, desire for new worlds, for other kinds of imaginaries outside of the normative nation state or the grasp of hegemonic power. I think it's a complicated term, right, in the global south, in certain communities, communities of color, when it's used as a universalizing category. And so then the effort to wild or queer queer <laughs> um, that Jack is making, I think in my own work, queer is quite a powerful word, lo queer, to use it in that sense, the C-U-I-R becomes a way to mark the kind of epistemic difference of what it means to think outside of normative context within the Americas, trying to think beyond just the nation state. So for me, lo queer allows that place of affinity, communal connection, transversal 
horizontal affinities, intimacies, political intimacies, even social intimacies, social ecologies that are not just in the gaze of the nation state and what it means to actually think way beyond the nation state, below the nation state, across other kinds of affinities. The fact that Maka is able to take queer out of its Euro-American context into the Americas, where it is a force for the decolonial, the anti-colonial, as well as the description of a whole set of sexual minoritarian impulses, it's so helpful in terms of breaking out of the deadlock of an identity politics that has stilled the critical intensity and potential of the category altogether. You know, so in a Euro-American context, queer emerged in the 1990s as a way of breaking loose from the politics of recognition that attended to LGBT efforts to simply enter into recognition through already legitimated channels. And the idea was that queerness would mess up these epistemologies and these ontologies in productive and radical ways. But in fact, what's happened is because of the sort of stultifying force of liberal agendas, like gay marriage, for example, queer has now just been rendered as an umbrella term that allows for many different sexual minorities to cluster under the same umbrella, and it's lost its political charge. So the category of wildness is more useful to me personally because it offers a critique of systems of classification, the very systems that produced categories like LGBT in the first place, while also calling attention to a larger climate, climactic and environmental context within which the efforts of classification emerged in the first place. So classification, we'll recall, was a kind of botanical project that was strongly linked with colonialism in the 18th century and that involved various colonial travelers going around the world looking at flora, fauna and peoples and taking notes, extracting all kinds of seeds and plant life and then writing a narrative of the world into which everyone was placed racially, environmentally, sexually and so on. So given that and given that that's a kind of civilizational script of the world wildness offers within it has the potential to unmake, unwrite, and unthink that script. And that for me is a kind of upgrade, if you like, of an earlier queer agenda. Of course, nature has been used to marginalize and pathologize sexual minorities. In fact, the earliest formulation of homosexuality was as a crime against nature. So where the classification of activity as sinful no longer had purchase, the new category was unnatural. And what you find is in early queer texts from the late 19th century, early 20th century, a lot of authors, you know, the most obvious being someone like Oscar Wilde, simply take up the charge of the unnatural and inhabit it. And, you know, in many ways, that's the definition of camp. It's saying, you, you think we're unnatural? You don't even know the half of it. And going all out with a kind of not just unnatural set of performances, but anti-natural. In the world that we find ourselves in, however, we're kind of in a post-natural state where no one really believes in nature anymore. There isn't much left that anyone could believe in as nature. So my book is interested in the post-natural as a domain of queer and other kinds of resistant politics and poetics. A hundred million years ago, 
The first flowers appeared among giant trees and ferns. Orchids were among the first flowers. The first jewels of color in a world of green, and a time before animals. The various ingenious and highly specific ways orchids have evolved. For their seeds to trick fungi into providing nutrients in order to germinate, or to spread pollen through mimicry and sexual deception, or to grow in places where most can't or won't, in or out of soil, have been used as arguments for a higher intelligence guiding evolution. A comforting thought amongst chaos. And I just want to pick up on something that Jack was mentioning. I love this idea that the apocalypse is not this kind of universalizing impulse and a singular event. You know, it's it's easy to imagine that we have so many popular images that describe that there will be, you know, this moment um, of kind of beyond time or beyond the human. And one of the things I've very much learned in conversation with a number of indigenous artists and activists is really the idea, and especially of working with Mapuche, Francisco Huichagueo, a filmmaker from southern Chile is the dystopia is now that dystopia has already come for 500 years or more the ways in which the dystopic upon territories of extraction has always been in play and so it depends on from which vantage point one looks and sees and which submerged perspectives you know actually show us that the apocalypse is not the temporal future but it's kind of merging past present and future and I think Jack's category of wildness is really disrupting that idea of a singular kind of normative temporality and temporal framework for apocalypse as well. You know, you want to say sort of apocalypse now, like the apocalypse is always sort of figured as an impending future that is going to arrive. And of course, we're in so many ways already in it. And I think here of the work of an artist I write about in my book, Kent Monkman, who is a um, Cree First Nations artist, two-spirit uh, artist from Canada, he paints these enormous canvases that in many ways repaint the history of modernist art in a European context, and on the other hand, repaint the history of colonialism from a native perspective. And he has a one painting called The Scream that, of course, is a reference to Edvard Munch's iconic modernist painting. But instead of having a kind of universalist, homunculus figure who is screaming the anxiety of the world... He gives us this incredible canvas of Canadian soldiers arriving to take Native children away from their mothers. And so the scream is the howl of Indigenous refusal and outrage. And it's a reminder that what modernism has positioned as apocalypse, as outrage, as anxiety, are in fact seen very, very differently from the perspective of the colonized. And it's that perspective that we want to attend to when thinking in much more radical ways about apocalypse and about climate. There was some kind of storm. It started falling in the forest, lightly at first and then so thick. Seeds, so small they were like dust, pollen maybe, or spores. I couldn't help breathing some of it in choking on it as it covered the inside of my mouth. It forced me to my knees, my head to the ground, crawling along the forest floor, trying to find cover as my skin became irritated and breathing became harder and harder. 
I started to itch intensely and my eyes watered. The seeds were sticking to my skin, sticking to the inside of my throat. I heard choking sounds, eventually drowned out by my own. I covered my head in my arms and curled into a fetal position, wondering if this was how I was going to die, when I heard a strangled scream and it suddenly stopped. When it cleared, auburn hair was gone. What does it mean to be queer in nature? Why is it different to being queer anywhere else in the world? I think that one of the most amazing things about being queer is that it gives us um, this kind of other perspective, this other, this other standpoint to look at the world from that is not the dominant one. Um, a view from elsewhere uh, as I like to say, um, and as queer people, we can use this kind of peek behind the curtain, um, the sense that things are not what we've been told they are. There are always more perspectives out there. And I think it's really appropriate that you're on an island because this makes me think a lot about, um, this moment that I was going through a breakup where I was reading The Doors of Perception uh, by Aldous Huxley, and he describes humans as island universes because of the different places that we're standing. You know, I think that this episode of Queer Ecology can really focus on the fact that, you know, as we've been saying, there is only transformation and the importance of constantly pushing against our own perspectives. I tried to really think about submerged perspectives and thinking about ways in which those seeking spaces outside of the purview of capitalism are already doing to tether ourselves to each other. And that, I think, has a long history, obviously, in queer theory, what it means to be in relational connection to each other. So this emerged perspectives was very much a way of describing certain forms of visuality or recognition and knowing that looks alongside and horizontally rather than vertically, turning to post-colonial studies, but then decolonial studies um, as you know, and querying decolonial studies to think about the submerged or what lies below the surface uh, as well, you know, that, that great iceberg, so that we can also get into our own desires. And so these submerged spaces and art forms puncturing the homogeneity, supposedly, of authoritarian noise, space, rhetoric, the smoothness of the idea of liberal democracy, you know, just a puncturing force as well. I think the monocultural logic against something much more diverse and poly-connected and a kind of multi-tentacle being like the octopus, right, um, that lives sometimes at the sea's edge, that this allows us to break down some of the, the thinking that has actually stifled us and open up, you know, new histories, new ways of telling. So I'm really trying to do that now in a new work called At the Sea's Edge, querying, complicating these spaces that have been often bound up. 
I think the problem with the current discourse is that it's very humanist, not just human-centric, but humanist. People engaged in some of the work of conservation or animal care or whatever leave intact the power relations between humans and animals. I think what I'm trying to conceptualize in my work, and this is alongside Marka's work and Moten and Hani and Saidiya Hartman and others, is not how do we make the world a better place for non-human actors, but how do we actually destroy the world that humans have built and maybe undo some of the logics that have us just you know, completely locked into these systems of extraction and exploitation. I don't think there's a way forward. I think there's only a way down. The apocalypse has already been here and it's been delivered courtesy of these discursive structures like heteronormativity, white supremacy, the domination of the wealthy. And that's why I'm saying we have to undo the mechanisms that keep returning us to systems within which the same people have the power over and over again. In the next phase, we have to, in fact, inhabit the arenas within which we are uncontrollable, ungovernable, unmanageable. We can't keep trying to say, no, no, we, we want to be managed. We want to be under the purview of the nation and the state. We actually have to embrace the wild accusations that are hurled at minority communities and turn them into a form of widespread dissent. What is it about being a thing that makes you a thing? Because we're all just the same thing. I don't want to be the same thing, but I am the same thing. This submerged world that she's speaking of, that is really part of the sexual and art underground, as she terms it. And it's super important to think about all of these worlds that are in the basement or the setano, as Macarena talks about it in her book. Thinking about the sea and the underwater makes me think of the way that we keep returning to the waves, actually, in this episode and the way that we have been talking to each other and how, like, without the sea and without the waves crossing the islands and without the waves traveling across the sea, how do you know what is an island? How do you know where land begins or ends? So who is the one that is doing the mapping, you know, when you can't really ignore the fact that all this land is actually surrounded by submerged worlds that define it. I had this idea I wanted to run by you. I wanted to give you one of my favorite quotes in literature ever. I just thought about it and I was like, okay, of course I was recording waves and sending it to Victoria. It's from Virginia Woolf, The Waves, and it says, And in me too the wave rises, it swells, it arches its back. I am aware once more of a new desire, something rising beneath me like the proud horse whose rider first spurs and then pulls him back. Mm, yes, 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 yes. That's really beautiful. You know, and I think it really points to the fact that You know, desire is also always transforming within us. Definitely, as queer people, we can acknowledge. And it makes me think about going back into what we were speaking a little bit about at the beginning of the episode. You know, this thing that all there really is is transformation. I think that can also be phrased as all there ever is is apocalypse. 
So thinking more about apocalypse, I just want to go back to this conversation that I had with Ama because she has this incredible project, Apocalypse Reading Room, which you'll hear more about. There's kind of that old idiom, like, can we actually write or imagine something that we haven't seen or experienced, which I think about a lot. I think about it, you know, at least once a week. I, I sit in that question. And ecology, of course, gives us more imagery, more ways of being, ways of reproducing, ways of cohabiting, ways of consuming one another, ways of decomposing, ways of being reborn, ways of uh, becoming a meal, <laughs> you know, becoming consumable, then all of the speculative fiction writers who are alive right now and, ha and have ever been alive could write about. <laughs> you know, they literally give us this unimaginably fecund sight of possibility. I would go so far as to say without the incredible ecological experiments <laughs> that we see the results of all around us every day, science fiction could not, speculative fiction could not exist. I definitely have always felt like science fiction has been preparing me for the apocalypse. I've got, you know, these kinds of books that I thought would or think would contain the knowledge that I'd need to not only survive a kind of breakdown in, 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 in economy and in, in society, but also to build something different. That really feeds into the Apocalypse Reading Room, which uh, was a physical installation at Free Word last year and is now virtual installation online. So it's a curated collection of books that we might need to change the end of the world. So the survival guide that I chose to bring to the Apocalypse Reading Room was the Chuangzu by Chuangzu. There's this really important um, phrase that I keep coming back to, which is, the name is the guest of the substance. Oh, wow. That's exquisite. Isn't it? And I think it is just really, it also talks about, you know, perspectives as temporary lodging places. And, and how um, important it is to really like sit in transformation and realize that all there is is transformation. All of these categories, all of these names that we give to things, you know, they are um, temporary, whether that's temporary because of, you know, our lifetimes or humanity or because we have the sense to recognize that impermanence is the only thing that's permanent. It's really, for me, at the root of what it means to do queer ecological work is to remember, to be humble, to remember that the way that we see things now, not only is probably not the way we will see things even tomorrow or in a few years or at the end of our life, but is also just one way of how something is being seen in this moment, throughout time, and interspecially. The way that I see rain is incredibly different to how an ant might see rain, how a microbial rotifer might perceive the soil that it lives in becoming damper or denser or more moist. And all those things are true. And my truth is no more important than another truth. And for me, it's that complete shifting of that hierarchical understanding of what knowledge is and what truth is that is really the key learning that we have to do as a species from thinking with queer ecologies. The flower itself is three meters tall. The smell is so strong it stings my nostrils, and I bathe in it. My senses feel their limits, yearn to go forward still. Colors I have never seen in impossible architectural shapes which evoke 
femininity and masculinity and heaven and earth and light and dark and young and old and sensuality and becoming opening and twisting away opening and beckoning that smell that makes me forget what I am that makes me want to return to a state I have known before but cannot describe to you with words I want it I want to be it. I feel that in some way I have already been it. That I am already it. And have come back to it. I'm a believer that all the pleasure and love and joy and kindness and belief that we manage to hold in a lifetime remains. It leaves lily-like residues all over the makeup of this world and this universe. I wake up, with pollen smudged across my hands and face. The way that you walk this land, the way that you <laughs> touch a leaf, does live a residue. It's the way that we connect to each other, but again, going against the human focus, and let's all think about how we connect to other species. Let's all think about to how we connect to what we perceive as different. I think that what we can really gain from all of the knowledge that has been shared in this episode is the importance of stepping outside of our perspectives, pushing against our perspectives, being comfortable outside of knowledge, pushing boldly ahead into the realm of not knowing because that is the realm that we actually you know, occupy, even though we like to convince ourselves otherwise. What is it about being a thing that makes you a thing? Because we're all just the same thing. I don't want to be the same thing, but I am the same thing. This Serpentine Back to Earth podcast is presented by me, Victoria Sin, and Costa Stasinopoulos, and produced by Katie Callen for Reduced Listening. Thank you so much for having me. This has been so amazing. Thank you for being here. And I want to thank Lucia Pietriusti, Holly Sutterworth, Katie Callen, and uh, of course, all of our participants who have made this episode so special, Jack Halberstam and Macarena gomez Paris and Ama Josephine Budge, who served with us so generously. I really want to thank you, Victoria. Thank you for sharing your thoughts and feelings with me. I've been doing it all this time and I want to keep doing it for ages to come. Yes, well, thank you for being here and I feel very privileged to be able to have been able to share my work in this episode. Uh, what we've been listening to and dipping in and out of is a sound piece called And at the Pinnacle, the Foot of a Mountain. Originally commissioned by Sight Gallery in Sheffield for the exhibition Rewriting the Future with Sofia Almeria, Sonia Dyer, Ursula Mayer and myself. And it is also currently on show at Tank Museum in Shanghai as part of the exhibition More, More, More. I mean, it really came out of the research that I did in Octavia Butler's papers at the Huntington in L.A. in her research into um, the Amazon and epiphytes. And we will return to it now. I step forward to meet its presence 
Feel it inhale, the carbon dioxide I exhale. Feel it exhale, the oxygen I inhale. And I inhale and my breath within me defines my body and its limits. And I exhale and my breath without me circulates through the air to be breathed by everything that comes before me and everything which comes after me. And I inhale as many molecules as there are stars in all the galaxies in the visible universe. And my three billion, billion, billion atoms, intricately arranged, lose their name to their individual parts. And I exhale, and the bloom I face inhales me completely. And I go through your leaves, through your hundreds of thousands of microscopic mouths. I am absorbed into your cells. I am broken down into my atoms by your chloroplasts, into oxygen, into carbon, into electrons circling protons and neutrons, into infinite things, into things which make up and move through everything, into the same things which I have always been, into the same thing it has always been. What if I had always been the same thing? That you came from the thing and will go back into the thing. We're all the same thing. It's all the same thing.